and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. Spins and I are going to break down a few different topics. We're going to talk about the four NBA play-in games that we've seen from the Atlanta Hawks and Miami Heat, the Oklahoma City Thunder, New Orleans Pelicans, the Los Angeles Lakers, and Minnesota Timberwolves, as well as the Chicago Bulls and Toronto Raptors. Then, we are going to dive into the Dallas Mavericks and their decision to tank the last few games of the NBA season. It seems like the league is taking a look into this. Adam and I kind of want to look at a few different angles on it and decide whether or not it was the right call, wrong call, number of different factors I think worth considering here. Finally, we're instead of talking about NBA draft prospects in 2023, given that we're going to do that quite a bit here moving forward on this show, especially on the Monday episodes. Spins and I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the players that have already removed themselves from the 2023 NBA draft process and will instead look to try their luck in 2024. That will include Kyle Filipowski, Donovan Klingen, Riley Kugel, guys like that. By the way, did you hear what I did there with uh, the OWs? Adam, no. Kyle Filipowski. Oh, we're in it. Uh, the, the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh is back in me uh, after spending a couple of days there, and it's it's tricky to get rid of. I'm gonna have to gonna have to get back to those OWs very strongly here. Uh, Kyle Filipowski, uh, not Kyle Filipowski, uh, for the people who have been around Pittsburgh uh, enough, they they know what's going on. But what's going on, Adam? Hey, Sam. Uh, it's great to see you here. I'll be honest. I don't know what day of the week it is anymore. Like we, it's what a weird kind of long weekend with a, a little bit of a holiday here, some days off from work for me. Like I, we're just getting through and, and powering through this thing. Uh, NBA playoffs are on the horizon this weekend, which gives us something to look forward to. But a lot of news and, and movement in the college basketball world as well, yeah. which means every day is, is an exciting one. Portsmouth Invitational starting this week. Uh, yeah. Really fun time for hoops. You're heading to the Portsmouth Invitational. You will be the game theory correspondent <laughs> at the Portsmouth Invitational. Uh, I'm out here in L.A. I've done draft workouts the last couple of days. It's been really exciting to sit down with some really, really interesting players that you guys will uh, see features on in time. Uh, th- there's one particularly that I'm really, really excited about. Uh, that I'm going to write here uh, probably within the next month or so. But really, really excited to have been out here. It was great to get back in gyms. Like you you get to be yeah. back in the gym all the time with your kids in high school. Man, it was so good to be back in gyms. Yeah. I just love it. I, I, I really loved getting to see these guys work out, shoot around, develop. That It, it was funny. I was talking to someone over at P3 because uh, I went up to Santa Barbara yesterday. And we talked about the idea of the NBA draft process just being aspirational by nature. And it really is like, I really genuinely love the NBA draft and I genuinely love talking to these kids and being a part of that process just because it is kids achieving their goals. It's trying to maximize their potential, trying to help these kids get the information that, allows them to maximize their ceiling and allows them to be in a position where they are uh, very, very positively impacted. So 
I'm really, really excited about this upcoming draft process. It was really, really nice to go up and kind of talk about that. It is genuinely why I love the NBA draft, the aspirational ideal of these kids just achieving everything they've wanted since the time that they were 10 years old. Yeah. Well, and then they even take that a step further as NBA fans and people who get so involved in this process pre-draft and watch them coming up from high school and the college and, and all of their improvements that they go through to then watch them turn into grown ass men and adults in the league who continue to build upon the skills that they've shown, get better, impact the game at the highest level. That's where this really comes to fruition and, and it feels like a fulfilling process. Even if you're just the smallest part of it, you're in the gym watching them. You have one conversation with a guy, you end up really rooting for him and, and wanting to see his success. And that's where it tends to be really fulfilling on that back end. Yeah. And you know, over the last, you know, five or six days or really over the last two days, particularly I've done, you know, sit downs with six different prospects and it's been really, really fun to get to know them and talk to them and, get a chance to really understand what they're about. Uh, you know, one of those kids I talked to today, for instance, was uh, Olivier Maxence Prosper, Omax from Marquette. I, I was blown away by Omax, to be completely honest. Like, he is one of the more just uh, intellectually curious, emotionally intelligent prospects that I've gotten a chance to talk to, you know, over the last few years, certainly. He, he was so, so impressive. He was so, so impressive sitting down and talking to him, talking about just like the different schemes and different coverages that Marquette utilizes and talking about, for instance, we had like an extended conversation on his uh, incredible performance against Jordan Hawkins in yeah. the Big East tournament where he chased yeah. Jordan Hawkins around screens constantly. And just his strategy is like a six foot eight guy with a seven foot one wingspan chasing guys around. It was it was such a good – and look, like I don't mean to single him out. It's just like that's one guy that was awesome that I talked to. I talked to so many really, really great people over the course of the last couple of days. Uh, it just is – it's so good to be a part of this process. I genuinely love it. But let's transition now to some of the guys that have gone through this process previously and are achieving success. I want to start with Oklahoma City, to be yeah. honest. Uh, Oklahoma yeah. City beats the New Orleans Pelicans 123-118 to 118 yesterday in their play-in game. And they are now set for a date against the Minnesota Timberwolves to be able to try and make the playoffs as a rebuilding team in the NBA playoffs. And man... I love this. Look, I've been clear. Oklahoma City has been one of my three favorite teams to watch this year. I love this team. Shout out the Kings. Shout out the Knicks. Those three would be my favorite that I enjoyed watching more than anybody else. But I so enjoyed watching Oklahoma City beat New Orleans yesterday. Uh, they are they're tough. Yeah. They're skilled. They're long. They're big. They're athletic. They're grimy. Like, they are tough dudes. I tried to tell people – up in Santa Barbara that I was with yesterday. Guys, like, Josh Giddy's exploits in Australia at, like, U18 underage tournaments when he was just, like, an up-and-coming prospect before he got to the NBL as the next star, they're, like, the stuff of legends. Like, this dude is not going to be in any way flustered by any moment that he gets thrown into within this setting and man that dude was unbelievable last night 
dropped 31 points, nine assists, had 10 rebounds. And I thought he was the best player on the court, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, shout out Shea Gilgis Alexander. Unbelievable player. No, no disrespect. Shea is the best player uh, between any of those guys. But like last night, for those moments with the way that he dictated that game, I thought Josh Giddy was the difference for the Oklahoma City Thunder. What were your thoughts on the Thunder Pelicans game? Yeah, so Giddy absolutely unflappable in those moments, and I'm glad you brought up his pedigree and and, and kind of how he's uh, been built for that moment because so many times we want to pick apart a lack of playoff experience and say, I don't know if the Thunder can make it past this point because nobody on their roster has really done it before. They've got a bunch of young guys who've never been in this situation. But when you draft for competitiveness and when you draft for high IQ and character, those are the guys that you trust to go to battle and just roll the ball out and say they're going to be the best version of themselves no matter how bright the spotlight is. And it was a great first step to see the Thunder bring that to fruition by playing as well as they did against the Pelicans and just being in attack mode throughout the game. I thought, you know, Giddy and Shea Gilgis Alexander as two different lead ball handlers, they provide so many different things for the Thunder offense. Giddy is this bagless wonder who just like finds ways to get to his spots and make the right play every single time. And then Gilgis Alexander is the guy with the turbo pack who can just live in the lane whenever he wants and is so fast and aggressive and really, really good at finding any hole in the defense he can to just punch through it and get into the lane. Those two are relentless over the course of a 48 minute game. And I thought the Pelicans defense really wore down as as the night went on because Oklahoma city wants to play with pace the way that they just inbound the ball, even after a made basket from the Pelicans, trying to hit it up the sideline and go a little bit faster. All of that stuff and the residual effect over a long game, it wears on you. And this Thunder team has no back down in them. I absolutely love their kind of collective grit and identity. Think you muted there, Sam. Yeah, like they're just huge. They play big. Like that's the thing. Like Josh Giddy is six foot eight six foot nine Shea is six foot six but with his wingspan he plays bigger than that Lou Dort plays bigger than six foot four like this team is very difficult I think to match up with across the positional spectrum and they really let their starters go last night like yeah you know Aaron Wiggins played 14 minutes Lindy Waters got like a little run in the second quarter right but when you're that big I feel like it's just really really hard to match up with you over the course of a game. And they're not overly big at the big position, but the other guy that stood out for me was not the Jalen Williams. That's going to be a finalist for rookie of the year. No, it's the Jalen Williams that plays center for this team as a rookie. And man, unbelievable performance. I thought from Jalen Williams, Jalen Williams went one of seven from three. The, The shot was not there for him last night. But man, the passing, the playmaking, the defense on the interior, I thought was quite strong given what he was asked to do within that game. Uh, across the board, they were just a monster. Yeah. When he was off the court, it felt like they had no answers. Like anytime Dario Saric was yeah. in the game, it, it's just like, it felt like the Pelicans got wherever they wanted. It, it was absolutely remarkable, I thought, yeah. to watch Jalen Williams 
just be as uh, impactful as he was throughout the course of that game. And it's such an important piece for the Thunder because while they're big at so many of the guard and wing spots, they have played really small on their front line all season long. And if you're going to play small at that position, you need to both play fast and effectively be able to spread teams out. Now, a lot of times we just think of spreading you out as being based on three-point shooting. And the fact that Jalen took seven of them last night shows that he trusts that shot. It's going to be a part of his arsenal, even if it didn't go in. But I was so impressed with the playmaking. Eight assists, zero turnovers. They used him at the top of the key in all their delay series action where they throw in the ball in the trail spot, and he can pick teams apart as a passer. He's very patient. He doesn't force things, which goes to the zero turnovers. But one strategy that New Orleans tried to do was to blitz Shea Gilgis-Alexander in ball screens. Say, we can't guard him one-on-one. We're not going to have the opportunity to keep him out of the lane. The best thing to do when someone sets a ball screen for him is to blitz him and force it out of his hands. And Jalen Williams, being an awesome short-roll playmaker and passer, is the perfect complement on the offensive end to a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander to threaten that type of coverage. So if they end up going against a team like Minnesota or Denver, you know, in this next play-in game or in the first round, a team that wants to play more drop coverage, Jalen Williams being the creator in delay action, being a pick-and-pop shooter, those are going to be those areas that he can thwart it. But if they decide in crunch time to blitz Shea Gilgis-Alexander and try to make somebody else beat them, Jalen Williams has already proven he's a fantastic processor, can make the right decision four on three almost every time. He is the perfect complement at that big man position to SGA. I'm disappointed I didn't have him higher on my board last year because of just how impactful he's been at both ends. But man, is, is he a great fit for this team. Great fit, great evaluation for what they needed him to be. I think, uh, in Oklahoma City. Let's just talk about the Pelicans very briefly. They just had a Zion, you know, sized hole in their lineup. And I will say, I thought it was interesting that CJ McCollum went on a bit of an extended discussion last night that we need guys to essentially be in the lineup and do the right things. That was, I thought, pretty pointed. Uh, without saying Zion's name, uh, I know that Larry Nance Jr. came out today with a tweet saying that we all back Zion in that locker room. We all love him. I'm sure that that's right. But I thought that CJ's frustration with the situation uh, came out in the post game presser, and it's disappointing uh, that Zion didn't play. But you know, I think at the end of the day, we need Zion healthy, and Zion needs to make that commitment to be healthy. Uh, I do think that it is on him to uh, be willing to continue to be in the utmost best physical condition he can be. And it's, I thought that Rudy Gay said something earlier today on a podcast that I thought was interesting. It's hard to be overweight and have longevity in the NBA. It just genuinely is Zion needs, we are, we are losing a genuinely special talent uh, in my opinion uh, with Zion, the less that we see him play. And it's just an incredible bummer to me. I get why, you know, if there are Pelicans fans and apparently people on the team a bit disappointed, I get it. Uh, what I will say about this, the thing that I thought turned it was obviously the third quarter that the Thunder won by 15. For whatever reason, Jonas Valanciunas went invisible in that third quarter. And I thought Jonas was actually kind of the key in the barometer for the Thunder 
or for it really for the Thunder and the Pelicans in this game for stretches. I mean, he had 16 points, 18 rebounds. His physicality and strength really was kind of the, the mismatch that they could have taken advantage of with Jalen Williams. But in that third quarter, he didn't attempt a shot. And if you look through the rest of the game, the Pelicans win the second quarter by nine. They win the fourth quarter by four. You know, the first quarter was a tight first quarter that went to the Thunder by three. The Thunder won that game in the third quarter, and I thought it was Jonas's absence was conspicuous in that third quarter, and it was uh, it was a bit disappointing to see that. I think this year, whether it's with Zion, without Zion, uh, the Pelicans never fully gelled and came to fruition with getting the most out of each guy at the time that they needed him. We saw so many special games from Brandon Ingram down the stretch run of the season, but it just never fully clicked. And look, they're they're one rim pressure guy away from being a really good and dangerous team. We know who that is and will be on this no, roster long term. We just <laughs> we need him healthy. We need to see him in the lineup and his absence and the lack of other guys who could create easier shots instead of Brandon Ingram having to just make the right play and really tough plays time and time and time again, that's ultimately what ended up hurting the Pelicans in my view. Yeah. And they have a long off season ahead. They're going to have to figure out uh, answers in terms of that backcourt, in my opinion, and they figure out answers to Zion uh, and see where that's going to go. Ultimately the Thunder will play the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, the Lakers and Timberwolves set basketball back by like five years <laughs> with that game. Uh, it was, it was not an enjoyable contest to watch. Let's just be real about that. I thought Minnesota gave it away, uh, completely. You know, this is a team that was leading throughout a majority of this contest. And ultimately what gave it away, I thought was, yeah, you can point to Carl Towns having a really good offensive game. And the fact that the team played uh, really well when he was on the court, just in terms of their spacing and uh, the way that the Lakers had to guard him. I thought it was very conspicuous in a good sense when Carl was on the court that it was just harder to double. It was harder to blitz Anthony Edwards. It was harder to do things uh, when Towns was on the court. He took himself off the court with just like incredibly silly decisions. Uh, That fifth foul where he just like grabbed Anthony Davis and just like pulled him down it, it, it made no sense to me. Like you have to have real game awareness there. And I thought that that they were starting. It felt like to me to really slow that run down for the Lakers in the fourth quarter when he got back on the court and he took himself off the court in a really important moment. And that I think was ultimately the thing that really kind of cost them the game in a number of ways. He was their best player. Don't get me wrong. Like he and Carl, him and Mike Conley were, the two best players on the court, but it's not an accident that they were plus 18 in the minutes with Carl Towns. And, uh, you know, Carl unfortunately took himself off the court in critical minutes and they lost the, what, what did they play? 53 minutes in this game. Yeah. They lost the 12 minutes that Carl Towns was off the court by, I think it was 24 points. And, it was in large part because of choices that Towns made to take himself off the court, why he didn't play 47, 48 minutes in this game. uh, That was not quite a must win, but a a very real important moment for them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Shout out to Chris Finch for the way that he managed the rest of their minutes in their roster, because he did everything in his power as a coach to give them a fighting chance. And this is a lot of issues compounding for Minnesota right now, where the absence of Gobert in that game, not having a healthy McDaniels, there's no option to go to at that bigger spot that you can really trust. No Nas Reed, not having those guys makes it really hard to sustain any minutes when Towns both isn't on the floor or isn't going supernova on the offensive end because he had, I think, a stretcher, if I believe it was in the third quarter, when he just had a couple buckets in a row where he got really cooking. And without having him there, Minnesota just didn't have enough size, physicality to be able to to do anything against the Lakers. And look, we can talk so much about the missed opportunities, the lack of gel that the the Timberwolves have really gone through throughout the season, they still get another chance at this thing. So, uh, I, you know, I, I want to see if they can grow into a little bit more with this final play-in game and then maybe get to a, a, a positive result in a series against Denver. But I agree with you. It very much felt like this game was given away by just some some poor choices that they were made, a lack of depth overall, and then having Anthony Edwards clearly not be at 100%. Yeah, I mean, hot take, having two players that are your two best defenders out because of terrible decisions, Rudy Gobert choosing to punch Kyle Anderson in a huddle, and then Jaden McDaniels choosing to punch a wall uh, yeah. in like the hallway and fracturing, what was it, his hand or his wrist? I can't remember which one. Uh, just bad decision making across the board is what cost them this game. Well, well and know, they between had those two and towns. Like, I, I think they lost this game because of bad decision making. And they had another opportunity. I think they were down three with what 13 seconds to go. They got a steal on that inbound play where LeBron just yeah. threw it away a little bit. And instead of getting a layup out of the three on one, like, I'm the first guy to criticize college announcers for talking about getting a quick two when you're down late, but you've got a three on one in transition with 15 seconds to go. And they end up taking a Torian Prince corner three, ends up missing. And now they're playing yeah. the foul game again. Like they had their opportunities. They could have easily held on to the game. They could have easily put it away at the end. Didn't come to fruition. Yeah. What I'll say as well about the Timberwolves, I saw a lot of consternation in regard to Anthony Edwards in this game. I thought the Lakers had a really good defensive strategy for Anthony Edwards. They just blitzed him constantly and made him get rid of the ball and made him make high-level decisions uh, to try and get those marginal advantages that come with two on the ball. And Anthony Edwards is not great at that yet. That's what I would do if I was Oklahoma City. I would be blitzing the ball every time Anthony Edwards has it and forcing the ball out of his hands and making guys like Carl Towns and Rudy Gobert, who should be back, beat me. And yeah. force force that to be the strategy at the end of the day. Uh, I thought that I thought Darvin Ham, as much as I have criticized him this year, he had a very solid defensive strategy to make life harder for the Timberwolves in this game. I do question. Clo- I think that it was like a genuine strategy for them to kind of close out short on some of Minnesota's shooters. And early in the first half, I thought it really bit them. You saw. Kyle Anderson end up making a couple of threes in that first half. You saw, uh, I believe it was uh, Torian Prince also make a couple of threes in that first half that, you know, uh, honestly, I thought like, I don't want to say LeBron was at fault, but like LeBron closing out short 
was what happened there. I, I just want to know more about what the strategy was. Like I can see a world where Darvin Ham told them, hey, we're going to close out short as opposed to, uh, you know, and try and get a late contest as opposed to like really uh, – getting after these guys and forcing them to put the ball on the court and getting the team in scrambles and rotations. Uh, I, I thought that I, I thought that that was really intriguing the way that the Lakers played the Timberwolves in this game. And uh, the other piece of this too, uh, Anthony Davis, you know, for as poorly as he seemed to start this game in the first half, he really came on in the second half. I thought he, he kind of, and along with LeBron, obviously th- those two just decided we are the best players on the court yeah. and we're going to the playoffs and it can be that simple. Sometimes it can be that, uh, transparent that LeBron James and Anthony Davis can take games over in ways that other guys can't experienced veterans with the physical capabilities that they have are like sharks, man. As soon as they smell blood in the water, they know exactly what to do, how to turn that gear on and they go into predator mode. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. No. And and for instance, like Dre here, you know, in the YouTube comments is saying Anthony Edwards fell in love with the three should have attacked the rim more. Honestly, I thought it was the way that the Lakers played him defensively. Uh, I don't think that that was really an option. Like them blitzing those screens and really trying to like force the ball out of his hands. What that does is it makes him a perimeter player in a lot of ways. And what they could have done, I thought, was move him off the ball a little bit more. Mm -hmm. You know, have like a 1-5 pick and roll attack a little bit more often with Mike Conley. And then try and get Anthony Edwards the ball on a reversal and then have Ant try and drive that way a little bit more. But that, you know, then you're taking the ball out of Anthony Edwards' hands, and I don't know if you want to do that all the time either. So it it was – I thought the Lakers did very, very well to make life very, very difficult on Anthony Edwards, a young player who succeeded at an exceedingly high level last last postseason, but succeeded uh, against a strategy defensively that did not necessarily – you know, force the ball out of his hands and make him make high level passing reads. And I think that's where the next step will come for Ant. And it'll come. Like, I, I think it yes. will come yep. by the time he's 24, 25 years old. He's just still so young. He's 21, 22. And, you know, this is his third season in the NBA. It's going to take time for him, and that's okay. But, yeah, I thought the Lakers did an incredible job defensively in this game. Jared Vanderbilt also deserves a shout out. It's a lot easier to blitz ball screens when you have just like the Energizer Bunny just flying around and scrambling all over the place, both in those blitzing scenarios and on the weak side whenever it's not him involved in the primary action. Yeah, Lakers Grizzlies is going to be a fun series. I'm so excited for that series. The the last guy I do want to shout out here. I thought Rui Achimura gave them real minutes, and I've been as uh, questionable about Rui playing in the playoffs as anybody else. I thought he gave them really, really solid minutes uh, in a way that helped them. Like, he made a couple of threes. I thought his size on the court was a real help for the Lakers at times. You look at the plus-minus metric, doesn't always tell the full story, but he was a plus-20 in that uh, in that part of the game that he was on the court. And those minutes corresponded with a lot of non-Towns minutes. So uh, I do think that's more why that happened in terms of the plus minus. But him just being a big body that was willing to shoot, willing to take uh, creative shots, I thought was really, really important for the Lakers. Okay, Lakers are dangerous, man. We've been saying it. They're dangerous. We've been saying it for a while. I think they're genuinely dangerous. And frankly, I would pick them to beat the Grizzlies at this point. I would. Going in. 
Okay. Let's go to the East. Do you want to start with Bulls, Raptors, or Hawks, Heat? You know, I feel like we probably should start with Bulls, Raptors, and make this a swan song for Toronto, kind of the last time that uh, that we talk about them here. Let's do it. Okay, this is the DR DeRozan game. Uh, <laughs> DR DeRozan is DeMar DeRozan's daughter, yeah. who was screeching at the top of her lungs every time the Raptors shot free throws. And it worked. The Raptors missed 18 free throws in a yeah. game that they lost by four. The Raptors, frankly, outplayed the Bulls in this game. Yep. They should have won this game. They outplayed them. They played better than the Chicago Bulls. So and they absolutely pissed this game down the drain. They did, but I also think that part of the reason they played so much better than the Bulls for the first two and a half to three quarters was because of some ineptitude of Chicago's defensive game planning. And mm. the way that they were kind of showing in ball screens or letting Jakob Pertle pick them apart in the short roll really allowed yep. Toronto to get a ton of easy looks at the basket. You look at the final quarter to quarter and a half, Chicago started switching. And when you have Nikola Vucevic, that does not sound like an appetizing strategy that to was come back and win choice. a game. But it worked. And it showed, I think, some of the, the flaws that this Toronto Raptors offense has is they don't have a lot of guys who are really quick off the bounce. They have some big toolsy yep. ball handlers, but they don't have guys who are quick enough to just go around somebody and get into the lane. And Fred Van Vliet yep. not being able to separate from Vucevic stalled out their offense. He had a three or maybe yep. two over the top of Vooch, but man, did it look like they were you know, a 1998 Game Boy in Pokemon just stuck with that question mark flashing over their heads. Like, well, and, really and know what that's, that's ultimately been the story of the Raptors season. Yeah. I think like you can point to the defense, which was leaky throughout the first half of the season. But to me, it was that they never found half court offensive answers with this roster. And ultimately, I mean, maybe we just like shift to what the Raptors do now. I mean, I'm really interested in Fred Van Vliet's offseason, Gary Trent's offseason. What, what do they do to rebuild this roster? I mean, Jakob Pertl is a free agent. Like, th- there are a lot of decisions to be made here. If I was the Raptors, I would be looking to try and find a way to shake this thing up in some manner and uh, try and rebuild around Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam in an intriguing way. I mean, like, I'm sure they want to keep Pirtle given the asset that they gave up for him, but it felt like all of those guys really kind of operate in similar spaces. Jakob is great in that short roll area. You know, Pascal loves those, like, mid-post, you know, mid-range areas. You know, Scotty Barnes, you know, just isn't impactful from beyond the three-point line right now as a scorer. So how do they get around that kind of – you know, mess in the mid range area right now where everything kind of seems so clumped together uh, when they play. And I do think there are ways around it. I I think that, you know, Jakob gave them a lot in terms of some gravity, in terms of some uh, ability to, uh, you know, take pressure off of guys that like a Fred Van Vliet, when he got blitzed in ball screen actions, which was happening uh, quite often. It's just, I, I don't know, man. Like I, I just don't buy this roster build. Like we've talked about it throughout the year on this show. 
I, I just think that they need some sort of shakeup in a real way. It, it would help if they had tenable depth. And, and I think that this they is don't. a team they, they went six deep really throughout the, the stretch run of the season here after the Pirtle trade. And there's no great young player that you could see as an asset that you would want to flip outside of Scotty Barnes. And he's the guy that you're trying to build around. So there well, are, they, they do have one, like, let's be clear. Like OG and Anobi is still like an elite asset league wide. Like there are a number of teams that will pay a substantial premium to acquire OG and Anobi. Right. But again, like OG to me is the kind of guy that you exactly want next to Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam as a three and D player that will space the floor and defend high level like players to take the pressure off of those guys defensively and let them grow into their offensive roles even more. I just don't like this roster build just straight up. That's I, I, we talk about like, I've talked about this a lot on the show. Oklahoma city and Toronto are doing very similar things. They're valuing positional size, positional length, strength, uh, skill with the ball for your size and for your position, the ability to play like inside out. What they're not valuing in Toronto's case is that ability to be like glue, to have that high level processing speed, to have that shooting and skill basis to their game. It's almost like they think they can teach those guys how to do it once they get into their scheme. Oklahoma City is drafting guys that have that already. Think Jalen Williams, six foot six, seven foot two wingspan. Chet Holmgren, seven foot, seven foot six wingspan. Uh, think Shea Gilgis Alexander, Josh Giddy, all of these guys we talk about with Oklahoma City, plus positional size, plus positional length, plus positional uh skill level, processing speed, all of it. It's just the flip side of the coin of what Toronto is doing, and it's the right call whenever you're calling heads or tails. So I just, I do not like the way Toronto has built this roster at all. And I think that there is, uh, there, there's going to have to be a reckoning at some point with all of this. And I don't think that it's necessarily blow it all up time, but I think it's also, you have to make some changes to add more IQ, more quickness and more three, specifically more three point shooting to this roster. And you don't have a lot of, younger guys, younger assets, guys on rookie contracts that are really attractive around the league that you can flip or include as part of those deals. So Masai Ujiri has to be really creative with how he retools this on the fly. Uh, A lot of questions for Toronto, but I also want to give Chicago some credit for ending their season and the way that they played the adjustments that they made defensively down the stretch. Uh, They have been really small since the all-star break, but they're making it work because they're just a team filled with really tough dudes. Yep. Okay. Let's go to this final game. And it was the first game that was played within the play in tournament. Uh, The Hawks in Miami heat, the Hawks go on the road and beat the Miami heat. Uh, Fascinating game for a number of reasons. I thought Trey young did a really good job of dealing with the defensive pressure that Miami put upon him. But ultimately, I thought this game was won by Clint Capella. Clint Capella scored four points in this game. He was the best player on the court. 
uh, genuinely. He was absolutely incredible. His offensive rebounding, his uh, just overall defensive ability in space, his defensive ability to swallow up Bam at a bio, I thought was really, really important, given how important Bam has been to Toronto or Miami's uh, offensive structure and identity this season, taking up that bigger role. I thought Clint was the best player on the court in this game. And I thought he was absolutely enormous. And he is why the Atlanta Hawks are going to the playoffs. If you want to know the value of three point shooting and one really good perimeter player star, watch this game because Miami had to come out and defend them more aggressively and on the perimeter. They had to. And that opened up short roll or, you know, immediate quick rip opportunities for everybody else on the roster the, the Hawks did get some wide-open catch-and-shoot threes in this game, but it opened up the offensive glass. And when you have a small roster the way that Miami does and you send your biggest guy out to try to defend the perimeter and Trey Young, as soon as that first line of defense is broken, you've got no rim protection behind, you've got no ability to, to secure a defensive rebound and end that position if you are able to force a miss. And Atlanta just relentlessly went after that. They spaced the floor, put the ball in Trey Young's hands, and said, great, whatever happens, as soon as the ball enters the three-point line, we're going to go get it. If it's a miss, we're going to slam it down or hit a wide-open three otherwise. And it just it worked. It was simple basketball, and it worked. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, with Miami particularly, it was really interesting. I thought Tyler Hero really struggled in the first yeah. half of this game. I, I thought that... Uh, it, it was really interesting the way Atlanta like lined up defensively. Typically, like you would think you would use DeAndre Hunter as like your stopper, right? Like you throw DeAndre onto like a Tyler Hero or a Jimmy Butler and felt like they didn't really do that, uh, which was intriguing to me. Like I felt like they would like utilize him more in that way, given that he's not like always an impactful help defender, but they didn't. And they, they just kind of rolled like, uh, DeJounte Murray onto critical guys. Like, uh, it was really, really intriguing to watch the way that Quinn Snyder just kind of rolled through these matchups. And Spo eventually adjusted. He got Kyle Lowry out there, had him kind of running off of screens and making him like the release valve, it felt like at times. Uh, Kyle had 33 points and really turned back the clock uh, in this game. And now the Miami Heat gets to go on and play. Uh, the Chicago Bulls to try and make the playoffs. And look, I, I think the Heat are the favorites in this game, like undeniably, but it's a fascinating, fascinating game, I think. Yeah, the, the thing that beat them against Atlanta, the offensive glass, is not something that Chicago will overwhelm you with based on size. But if you yeah. size up a guy like Patrick Beverly, who just finds a way to make an impact, even though he's a little bit scared to shoot the ball out there, then you find yourself in a position where you can be shortchanged or, or where you, uh, you're you not going to get the result that you want. So uh, less of a contrast of styles, but I, I think the Atlanta-Miami game really well coached on both ends. We're just seeing that Eric Spolstra does not have the defensive versatility to weaponize this roster in a variety of ways where he's kind of got to live with who they are and, and just maximize Bam Adebayo and hope that the rest of it falls into place well, he doesn't have enough dudes. Like, let's doesn't just be real about dudes. it. Like, doesn't have enough dudes. Like, I love Max Struess, and I love the story of Gabe Vincent, and, you know, uh, I think Caleb Martin's been a really fun story this year, but, like, these guys are not guys that should be playing 
what did they play? I think I think it was like 75 minutes in this game between the three of them. That's like almost two positions on the court at all times that are being kind of taken up by guys that frankly probably aren't good enough uh, to be in those games in very high leverage roles like fifth man in like a critical moment in the playoffs. So I think the heat just need to go out and find dudes. Like it's kind of simple. Like I, I like Jimmy, I like bam, you know, they're going to figure out an answer for Kyle Lowry who had a very underwhelming season, but uh, they still have a chance to make playoffs certainly. And I'd be intrigued to see them play the Milwaukee bucks, given the trouble they've given the bucks previously, but I don't know if they're going to be able to give them a ton of trouble this year with just how the offense seems to be playing. Okay. Let's take a break, and then we're going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for Nord VPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions, just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough Uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. All right, Adam, the Dallas Mavericks basically decided to sit everybody on their roster for the final two games. Yeah. They were in a play-in race, like genuinely, like they could have made the play-in at the time that they decided to do this. The NBA is investigating this. They are uh, 
looking into the decision to essentially toss these two games and try and keep their draft pick. That's ultimately the key thing. They have a top 10 protected pick that goes to New York if the Mavericks fall outside of the top 10 in this NBA draft. And by losing those two games, they're currently slotted in at 10. If one of New Orleans, Toronto, Orlando, Oklahoma City jumps into the top four, they will lose that pick. Currently, I believe that the chances of that happening are, you know, I can try and do math on this. (laughs) I I mean, I think that it's like not wildly high, given the fact that Dallas also would have an opportunity. I think they have something like, uh, what is it? It's, I think that they have, I think they have like a 14% chance or so to jump into the top four themselves. And then they have something like, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's around 20 to drop out. Yeah. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. What was your reaction to Dallas deciding to sit there guys? To me, it feels like the law of unintended consequences from a league standpoint, that if you allow teams to top 10 protect their picks and make a lot of these deals, you're putting them in a position where they've got to weigh the long game versus the short game. And if you are an objective person and you've watched the Dallas Mavericks play basketball over the last, what, two months now? you pretty much know that they don't have much of a chance of winning a postseason series with how cooked their defense has been. Yep. And this is, in my view, the right long-term call for the Dallas Mavericks to take because they can get some immediate value out of this in a pivotal summer for them, whether they keep the pick or they end up trading it for something that would help them a little bit more immediately as a veteran. Not saying I recommend that, but saying that that option is at least on the table. And we know right now that, you know, the 2024 draft, when they might kick this pick down to had it transfer or if it transfers to the Knicks is not going to be an incredibly strong one. Plus they're probably going to be better next year and would have a a lesser pick in the draft. So I, I see this as more so about the loophole in the NBA rules. That is just the unfortunate reality of the situation. The league can and may want to, investigate them and the decision-making that went into this as much as they want. It's a shame that Jason Kidd sat in a press conference and really said the quiet part out loud that we all know and we're all thinking. But if we're talking about long-term decision-making for an organization, this isn't the first time we've seen it, and I don't think it's the wrong call for them to make. (sighs) I think it was the right call. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't think it was within the spirit of basketball. Like, I don't think it was in the spirit of competition. And part of me is like, look, this defense is a mess. And we know that the rest of the lineups are a mess and they never figured out front court rotations. And uh, look, we'll, we'll talk a lot about Nico Harrison here in a minute and what this mass front office has done uh, to this roster. And I think it's worth talking about, but like part of me is like, you have Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving. And you're going to be going to play like a Pelicans team that, you know, could or potentially could have been playing a Pelicans team that has also been a mess. You're going to play potentially a Timberwolves team that the end result was 
you know, Rudy Gobert punching a teammate and Jaden McDaniels being out, taking off their best option for guarding Luka Doncic in a series. And if you have Luka and Kyrie, part of me is like, we saw this last year. We know what, we know what comes, we know what comes of this. Mavericks, Mavericks are an incredibly dangerous team in the playoffs because of Luka. They also have Kyrie. Kyrie is a dangerous playoff player. I do agree with you, though, that I think it's unlikely, given their defensive structure, they could have gotten stops in the playoffs. And ultimately, I do think that this Kyrie trade was seen and completed with the idea of them looking forward toward next year and the years beyond that. I think that they saw an opportunity to get a superstar player to pair next to Luka Doncic that they think will fit next to Luka. And as long as Kyrie stays on the court and does everything he's supposed to do, I am a believer in the Kyrie-Luka fit because they are both high-level processors, decision-makers, shooters, skill players. Uh, we had questions about the Chris Paul, you know, James Harden fit until we didn't, right? And those guys are incredible shooters, processors, playmakers with the ball in their hand. I'm a believer in the Kyrie Luca thing being a fit long term. I am. The problem for me is if I was a Dallas fan and what would ultimately be concerning to me is a I don't know how much you can trust Kyrie, like let's just be straight up straight up about this. And B, I just don't buy what Nico Harrison has done in terms of building this roster. I came on this show last year when they traded for Christian Wood, and I said I did not think that this was a good move. Uh, I I said something along the lines of, look, whatever, it's a decent swing to take, but I don't think he's going to play in critical minutes in the playoffs, and I would have rather had the opportunity cost of having that 27th overall pick in hand and try to use it to get somebody else that I think would have been different. I thought I said at the time that I thought Maxi Kleba was going to play over Christian Wood in important minutes. And look, at the end of the day, Jason Kidd never trusted Christian Wood, never trusted him defensively. And that's, in my opinion, uh, Christian Wood was a great offensive player this year. He's probably like in a vacuum worth the 27th overall pick, but trades aren't made in a vacuum when teams have limited assets to spare. And ultimately, I think that Christian Wood was the wrong trade to make for this team because I just didn't buy him defensively. Do I think that trading Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie was the wrong trade for Dallas? I would have done everything I could to keep Dorian Finney-Smith, but I kind of do think that that was fine. Genuinely, like I, I understood yeah. why you would do that, thinking that you can get a Dorian Finney-Smith more easily than you can get a Kyrie Irving. And I think that that is a reasonable stance to take along with the first round pick. The problem is that you look at Nico Harrison's other moves, it's JaVale McGee to a three-year deal. The moves you don't make to try and fill in the gaps defensively at the deadline to surround Kyrie and Luka Doncic with guys that can play. Try to find a big. Those guys were not like wildly expensive uh, on the market. This uh, this trade deadline, like you look at what Mason Plumley went for. You look at what other guys that were bigs on the market went for. They were available. 
I, I just, I think that Nico Harrison is not the right guy to run this show. And look, we should throw around blame to Mark Cuban a little bit. We know that Mark Cuban is involved in the front office, right? Like we need to be real about that. Mark Cuban is involved in their front office. Here's the thing. Mark Cuban's not going away. Like Mark Cuban is a stagnant for Dallas. He owns the team. So I really do think that they need to strongly consider kind of looking to revamp the front office, looking to revamp the coaching staff. I was not impressed with Jason Kidd this year. Uh, I didn't think that he did much of anything creative. I didn't think that the defensive identity that he had last season that led to their run carried over to year two. And you can look at the roster and say that they made poor moves to do that. I wouldn't disagree necessarily. But I also think that, you know, it might not have been Jason Kidd that was the defensive identity. I think it might have been those dudes in the locker room that was that were the defensive identity. So if I was a Mavericks fan right now, I wouldn't be pissed about the tanking. I wouldn't be upset that the team decided we can't make a run this year. I'd just be pissed about Nico Harrison and Jason Kidd being the guys making the decisions uh, and making critical roles uh, within this or critical decisions within this ecosystem at this point. The one thing that doesn't quite sit right with me right now, and I'm a, I'm a big Mark Cuban guy. I always have been. I love the passion that he puts into to owning a team. I wish we had more owners in sports that were like him in that regard. Uh, I don't think that it, it, it makes me uncomfortable to watch them pull themselves out of the playoff race to try to make this long-term decision for the pick while simultaneously trying to criticize all of the behind the scenes factors that took Jalen Brunson away from Dallas. Uh, And you know what? Like I'm, I have to be careful with what I say here. Uh, (laughs) I think that Mark Cuban is correct in terms of what he said. Mm-hmm. I uh, I don't know how much of a chance Dallas had to retain Jalen Brunson. I, well, I would I have, yeah. yeah, paid I, more. I would have paid more than the Knicks to retain him. If I like, I went on the show at the time when everyone said that was an overpay, and I said I thought it wasn't. So I, I've been in on the Jalen Brunson deal yep. the Knicks signed from the jump. I think that, you know, Dallas should have just been like left him a voicemail being like, look, we'll pay you four one twenty to stay. You know what I mean? Like look, do whatever you have to, to get that decision across, but like or to get that information across. But like, yeah, I, I am not, uh, not surprised. What you ended the yeah. way it did with the Knicks. what, what Cuban said was right. But the timing and the lack of awareness to complain about being cheated out of something while you're kind of skirting around the rules to keep that 10th overall pick or the the chance at that 10th pick just doesn't sit right with me. That's all. Yep. Yeah. And look, like the real like error with Dallas, right? The real, the original sin with Dallas, with Jalen Brunson was they should have just signed him to the 455 extension the extension. Yeah. Like Jalen Brunson had already proven himself to be like the perfect foil for Luka Doncic even before the playoff breakout last year. Like I thought they should have signed it to him the off season before, you know what I like? I thought that Jalen had proven enough to be worth that deal, especially knowing 
what the TV money is going to look like down the road and with the way the salary cap is going to continue to rise. Like that was a that was a deal that made a lot of sense to me to sign him to 455 even at the time. That that is where they originally should have been able to retain Jalen Brunson, in my opinion. And that was that was the error that was made with Jalen Brunson. I don't think it was in free agency from Dallas's perspective. I think it was prior, uh, not offering that extension because J- Jalen was Jalen was awesome his third season in Dallas. We had we had enough information on Jalen at that point to know that he was worth that money. He'd been awesome for a long time. I love Jalen Brunson. I love him. Yeah, no, I think he's absolutely terrific. Now, uh, here here comes the rest of this. Now, if you're Dallas, what do you do? moving forward here uh look just to give me one second i'll close the loop on tanking like do do i think the league should do something to curtail tanking in some way i mean look find dallas whatever do what you have to do you know i don't know if you could find dallas enough based on the current rules in the collective bargaining agreement to where you know it's worth it for mark cuban not to do this but i don't think you can really do anything to stop this And the reason is that basketball is such an individually driven, star-laden sport that the more bites at the apple you have to find that star, find that second star, find that third star that's necessary to win a title, I think that you have to continue taking them. And ultimately, I don't really see any way that tanking will be curtailed. Uh, I don't think there's any way the league can really do it uh unfortunately because realistically like okay take draft picks away i guess like that that could be the argument like uh, try and take this draft pick away that feels egregious to me for like a two-game tank right uh port look at what portland's done the last two years like portland has sat damian lillard in the middle of damian lillard's best season of his career what are we gonna do are we gonna strip portland of their pick are we gonna strip x y and z teams of their pick I'm not in favor of that. I think that's aggressive and you know overly sensitive to what this issue is. So yeah, no, I, I would just continue down the road of if teams want to do this, fine, find them, do whatever you have to do. But uh, I, I don't. I also don't think that. I also don't think there is a world where we should make lottery odds even flatter yeah. yep. than what we have. Like they're flat enough as it is. You have a 14 percent chance to win the lottery. If you are the worst team in the league, you have, uh, you know, like a 12% chance. If you are the fourth worst team, you have a 10% chance. If you're the fifth worst team, uh, you can fall. You have a 50, 50 shot basically to fall all the way out of the top four. If you are, uh, the worst team in the NBA. So I think the way they flatten lottery odds are fine. I just think the league is such a star driven league that, when you don't have it, your best chance is to try and go to the draft. And at the end of the day, I'm just not like an abolish the draft person. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm sorry. Like I I get the argument for it, but I think in a league where you want to have some degree of parity, you don't want it to become European uh, football, which is basically, I think what it would become at the end of the day. Yep. Totally agree. Okay, where do you think Dallas goes this offseason now? Oh, I don't have a damn clue. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I have no idea what I would do if I were in charge of that organization because so much of it is tied up in decisions related to the cap, right? 
And I think the first domino with that is probably Christian Wood. You've got to have a really smart game plan and know what your long-term decision is going to be with re-signing him, with how long do you keep him around, what infrastructure can you try to cobble together to make a Kyrie, Luke, a Christian Wood uh, team work, and can you afford that infrastructure here this offseason in the summer? Because I think this is the one year where Dallas pretty much has no margin for error. Uh we hear some rumblings about Luca. I don't want to speak those into existence or, or verify any, no idea, but they need to do a really good job immediately in this year to make the right decisions and make this a playoff viable roster next season. Uh, hopefully the pick helps them with that, whether they keep it, whether they trade it depends on how they, if they are around a 10, who's on the board, can they jump up into the top four completely changes the complexion of yep. what the off season might look like for them. But at the end of the day, they've got to do something and they've got to add a lot of versatile three and D type of pieces around the core that they have. Yeah. And I think they need an answer in on the interior as well. Uh, I think this is probably a team that you have to play drop coverage with. And I think you have to find that interior presence is a center that can give you that opportunity. Um, the, the problem is that like Jakob Pertl is probably the guy like in free agency that makes sense. It's just that like, they don't really have a mechanism uh, unless that they try and trade like the 10th overall pick. Uh, if they get that pick for Jakob Pertl and like a sign and trade involving Dwight Powell or some shit, like, I don't know. I'm like just trying to throw shit at the wall on some level. Um, but you know it might not be might be like JaVale and something else right because you can get to the money in some manner uh but yeah like I, I think that that's what you have to do uh you have to try and find an interior presence you have to find three and d wings that can make sense for you uh and you have to kind of go from there like you have to you have to have more of an interior defensive presence i think uh in addition to having more mobility on the wings defensively i think that's the critical piece for Dallas this offseason they have enough offense they, they can you can, you know, makeshift find offense with the dudes you have in the backcourt. You just got to find some uh, front court play. You've got to find those guys that can defend on the wings. And okay. luckily, luckily for them, Sam, those tend to be a little bit cheaper. They do. That they do. Okay. The the funnier answer is something that Thomas Carniero uh, just put into the YouTube yeah, comments. Yeah. I'm not going to put, I'm not going to put it on the screen. Cause like, it doesn't even really work functionally uh, just because of some of the free agency pieces involved, but a Rudy Gobert trade. If yeah. Minnesota decides to end that experiment after one year is actually really interesting for them. Wow. It's actually like, <laughs> it's also a lot of their problems. If we're being completely honest. Oh boy. That's oh, that's something I would look into, but again, like if you're Minnesota, what does Dallas have that you'd want to do? Because like I I don't think that you do Kyrie for uh, Gobert if you're Dallas necessarily. Yeah, so. and and you can't tell me we're gonna have Gobert and Kyrie in the same locker room, right? Like I'm watching every. Oh, let's just every, go nuts. I'm watching every game yeah. the Mavs play next year if that's the case. Let's just go crazy. Okay, let's go to some guys that have decided not to be in the 2024 or 2023 NBA draft and instead will try their luck in the 2023 draft. So ostensibly the Monday show tends to be a draft podcast. This is a Thursday show with Adam Spinella. We are going to be focusing more on the 2023 NBA draft, typically on the Monday show here. But 
Adam, we had a number of players decide to try their luck in 2024. The reason for that is, I think it is important to say, A, some of these guys just might not have seen themselves as ready. I think Donovan Klingon would have been a top 20 pick at the end of the day, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, and he decided to go back to Connecticut. We'll talk about him momentarily. But the 2024 NBA draft, it really cannot be emphasized enough. It is a weaker class than what this class is, especially at the top. I am genuinely not sure that there is a player in the 2024 draft that would be taken in the top five or six in this class. And look, guys will emerge like modest Buzelis is really intriguing. And I think he's awesome. There's a chance that like he blows the doors off the G league ignite and makes it to the point where he is the kind of dude that would be in the class of being like a top five pick this year for sure. There are other players I really like in this class. But at the end of the day, this is a very weak 2024 class. And I think that it is for some players worth trying their luck later because of how weak that class is uh, forthcoming. And there's a couple other factors that go into that too, Sam. First is NIL money, which is a a game changer uh, for a lot of guys to be able to stay in college a little bit longer to feel like there aren't these financial pressures around any of the decisions to leave or turn pro. And then one other area that has started to pop up a little bit more, particularly with second round picks over the last year or two, is that now NBA teams have these two-way contracts as mechanisms to sign them to. And two-way deals offer less long-term and immediate financial stability as a standard second-round contract that you might sign with two years guaranteed and potential options beyond that. So if you don't end up going in the top 30, but you declare this year, you really change the long-term stability and trajectory that you might be on if you entered the class and just missed. That going back to college, making a little bit of money with the NIL that you have, and betting on not just yourself to get better in that environment, but comparatively showing better next to what we think is going to be a weaker class could pay off. And I think we've seen quite a few talented guys who are maybe right on that first round bubble this year make the decision to go back to school. I think that that's right. And I also think that there's an interesting thing happening for some of the older players in this class with the addition of the third two-way speaking of the two-way contracts where the fact that there might be some guys, for instance, like Jeremy Roach declared for the draft this year, right? Ostensibly, I'm not particularly a fan of Jeremy Roach as a potential NBA player. Uh, You know, had a really interesting season at Duke, had a great postseason in 2022. He's small. He's not like an elite level shooter. He's not an elite level decision maker. Uh, It feels like the injury that he suffered in high school may have like, kind of sapped a little bit of burst from his game uh, from when I saw him earlier in his career. So that guy could really potentially look at the third two-way contract and see it as an opportunity to where, you know what, I might be on the borderline of getting a second two-way. Now there are 30 additional spots for guys like me. I might be willing to do this. And Jeremy Roach is declaring while maintaining his eligibility. I think that there are... Uh, a number of potential avenues he could take at Duke 
in the transfer portal, potentially pro options as well. But let's talk about some of the guys that decided to go back to school. And I think that the one that took most by surprise was probably Kyle Filipowski. Kyle Filipowski, for what it's worth, from what I know, the, this had been discussed as a real potential outcome basically since, like, for a while. Like, th- there was never any clarity that Kyle Filipowski was going to be in this draft. Other guys that have already declared, I've known for a while they were going to be in this class, right? It, it's just kind of the way that the world works. When I'm talking to agents all the time, I'm talking to insiders, I'm talking to sources on the team side, you kind of get a feel for who's going to be in this class and who's going to not be in this class. Kyle Filipowski was a very real question mark in terms of whether or not he was going to stay or go basically even after he'd already broken out at Duke. And the answer I'd gotten was he really loves college and there, there are real, let's be, let's just be a hundred percent about, let's be a hundred about this, right? There are real opportunities for being like a very high profile, like white kid at Duke in terms of the NIL market. Right. So he is, always been someone that was on the borderline of staying or going. I think he likely would have been a first round pick had he decided to come out. I also think Kyle Filipowski's defense is kind of underrated. And I think that as teams would have gone down the road of evaluating and scouting him, you would have seen that they would have, you would have gotten more discussion about that. I thought that his mobility this year in space was a little bit better than what people thought. There's a lot more Kelly Olenek to his game than there is like, you know, stiff white dude, you can't move to his game. And he is now going to lead the Duke Blue Devils next season, along with Tyrese Proctor. And for as much as Kyle Filipowski has gotten the headlines, in regard to his 2023 NBA draft decision. I will have Tyrese Proctor higher on my board next year, entering the draft. I really, truly thought that if Tyrese Proctor had tried his luck in this draft, I thought there was a pretty good shot he would have gone like 25th overall. Uh, I know that he started the season poorly. I know that the full season numbers do not look awesome in terms of efficiency. By the end of the season, his defensive play, some of the things he did in terms of in ball screen actions as a scorer had drastically improved. Yes, His playmaking out of ball screens has always been there. He is like a six foot four to six foot five lead guard who can defend, who wants to defend, who does have real skills. Uh, with the ball in his hands. There are some growth opportunities for him, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But I think Tyrese Proctor is going to be a lottery pick in 2024. I do. I think that we're going to look at him as the guy that returned to college basketball that was the critical decision of all of them uh, throughout this process. I co-signed that, and I have been such a Proctor defender this entire season because Duke's offense was not set up to put him in a position where his pick and roll playmaking popped. What he needed to get better at was obviously his three point shooting and the reliability behind the arc. 
and having some way to score with the ball in his hands when he's attacking the basket. I think he found that at the end of the year. He has this crafty kind of mid-range game, this step back, this almost spin move into a, a jump shot that he gets to. Really, really smart, cerebral player on both ends of the floor, but super young. Really yeah. would have been young for this draft class to the point where going back to school next year, we're going to look at him and we're going to say, oh, that's a young sophomore who's gotten so much better already has positional size, feel, plays well on both ends. What are we missing yep. here? I mean, this is a guy who's tailor-made to shoot up those draft boards. I think that's a really good call. Yeah, I, I truly think that Tyrese is going to be, you know, I don't know if he'll be an All-American next season. I think Kyle Filipowski certainly will be an All-American yeah. next season. Uh, I, I really do think that Tyrese is going to be the guy that we look at as leading Duke to that top five. Mark, he's like the X factor. Like we know Filipowski's going to go for like 18 and 10 next year and just be absolutely tremendous. Right. Tyrese is the guy that's going to take the biggest leap in my opinion, uh, in, in terms of what his game looks like, because we saw it in the second half, uh, of the season. We saw what it looks like. We saw what he is capable of. And Oh, by the way, I do think Kyle Filipowski has a real chance to go in the lottery as well. I'll probably have him at like 14 entering next season i'll have tyrese at like nine or ten but i will have filipowski at you know 14 or so and i think filipowski is gonna have a tremendous season the other big addition is that they get back mark mitchell yes and mark mitchell is a guy that had a very strong defensive season for duke ultimately the question is about what his offensive fit is at the next level he's not really a shooter right now he can kind of handle the ball but not really at the level he needs to yet for the nba there are some real skills there that i think will lead to him being a high level player uh, and i think he will play in the nba at some point he's really tough uh really physical really aggressive and as soon as that shot comes along, I think he is going to be really, really good. The thing about Duke next year, including Mark Mitchell, Kyle Lepowski, Tyrese Proctor, all three of those guys are tough, man. And they're also getting in Sean Stewart. I don't know how much you've seen of Sean Stewart, man. Like that dude's physical as hell. Yeah. <laughs> like that dude plays like a tough brand of basketball, like in a way that is like fun to watch. They also get in Jared McCain, Caleb Foster, TJ Power, skilled freshmen that I think are high level guys like Jaden shut should be able to bring high level shooting to the team next season. They have the toughness, the physicality, they have the skill level. I do genuinely think Duke should be the number one team entering next season. I'm not sure it's all that close given that they actually have some real older players that uh, will be a part of their roster. Yeah, this is this is going to be a power uh, to watch out for in college basketball. And I love I really like Mark Mitchell long term. I think he was super raw this year and gave them as much as he could on the defensive end. But if we're talking long term with the skills and fluidity, this is my coach spins hot take of the day. I much prefer him to a guy like Noah Clowney out of Alabama. I just I think that the, the defensive impact, the the skill with the ball in his hands is a little bit more intriguing to me. I think people are getting a little ahead of themselves with Noah Clowney. Just a little bit, a little bit. Like I, I'm, I'm intrigued like 25 to 45 is where I'm at yeah. on Noah Clowney. I've seen him creep into like the teens in some places. 
yeah. Um, I like him as a 25 to 45 guy for sure. Um, that's more where I'm seeing it right now. Um, any other thoughts on Duke before we move on? No, I think that their roster is going to pop a little bit more because they're not trying to play six bigs at the same time. And they'll have real three point shooting around Proctor, Filipowski and Mitchell. Uh, I think it's much better designed next year. And I'm really looking forward to see the evolution of John Shire as a coach. Uh, I grew up a Duke fan. Love what the Blue Devils have, have always kind of done to to maximize who they are. And I think Shire got so much better as a coach throughout the season and figured out what buttons to press with his team. But hopefully this roster with as much talent and a better fit on paper, so to speak, he won't have to wait as long to figure out what those buttons are. Yeah, and honestly, I thought John was pretty good this year, to He's be great. honest. He uh, great. Like, I, I genuinely do. I thought that he had a good feel for when to make adjustments. And I thought that later in the season, he had a good feel for uh, what buttons to press in terms of like defensive identity and and things like that to get the most out of guys like Derek Lively. Okay. The next guy on our list that we want to talk about is Donovan Klingon. Donovan Klingon is another guy that I will have as a lottery pick next year. Uh, I wrote about Donovan Klingon's decision after he made the choice to go back to Connecticut Uh, Just a few of the numbers on Donovan Klingon here that I wrote about because they are absolutely fucking bonkers and I want people to know them. Uh, I genuinely do not think Donovan Klingon would have gotten outside of the top 20 in this NBA draft. Uh, That is just straight up. I talked to someone that does some modeling uh, in terms of like statistics for college players uh, in the NBA draft space. Donovan Klingon was number one in their stats only model for the 2023 NBA draft. Uh, That is insane. That's just completely bonkers. Uh, Second, when Donovan Klingon was on the court, Connecticut's opponents, do you know what they shot at the basket spins? Please tell me it's like 35%. Yeah, this includes transition opportunities. They shot 41%. Yeah, geez. When he was on the court per pivot analysis. Uh, when Donovan Klingon was on the court, teams only scored 89.9 points per 100 possessions versus 103 points per 100 possessions when he was off the court. 89.9 points per 100 possessions is a fucking insane number for college basketball. Like, I, I don't know that I've seen a number like that ridiculous for a player with that kind of differential uh, that plays like real genuine minutes and like is the is the identifiable piece on why the defense improves when he's on the court Uh, in terms of the production, like you're talking about a guy that, you know, averaged 7.6 rebounds, two blocks in 13 minutes per night. I talked to Klingon, you know, at the final four after their game against uh, Miami. I just kind of straight up asked him. I was like, look, I've kind of stood next to guys that are, like seven foot one, seven foot two before. I'm like not totally sure you're seven foot two. Like, are you a little bit taller than that? And he was like, I think I'm a little bit taller than seven foot two at this point. Yeah. And I think he is. I think he's going to measure closer to seven foot three. Uh, I don't know what he'll be listed at next year. We'll find out, obviously. But Donovan at least told me he thinks he's though in the maybe seven foot two, seven five range, something like that. So a little bit bigger. He's a true 
let's at least say this. He's a true seven foot two guy. Like he's Huge. not. Yeah. Like he's not like, oh, he's listed at seven two. He's something else. He's not that. He's big. He's enormous. If we're being clear about it. And he's big. His frame is enormous. Like Brooke Lopez, like part of why he's been so successful this season is he has that frame, right? It's not just the, you know, the length and the size and the rim protection. It's the fact that he's big. He just takes up space. He takes up enormous amounts of space in the lane and just makes it more crowded and harder to maneuver around. Uh, Klingon has that attribute as well. He just, he can move. Like Donovan's short area quickness is better than what I thought it was. Like seeing him up close to the final four, it's something, man. Like he is, he's not a stiff. Like there are some like occasional uncoordinated moments where like he gets the ball and just kind of flings one, you know, but he's not, that's going to get out of his game real quick. That's going to go real fast out of his game. And the coordination is real. He's like one of the more well-proportioned seven footers I've seen before. Like sometimes you can have super high hips. Sometimes you can have like really thin shoulders kind of for like an NBA frame. He is as well-proportioned a seven footer as I've seen. Uh, This is a lottery pick in my opinion, just straight up like next year in 2024. That's a lottery pick. He's got real touch around the basket, soft hands. Uh, obviously, the, the defensive upside is massive, pun intended, with his frame. Uh, the, the thing to me about kind of clinging and just thinking about his long-term fit in the NBA is exactly what you mentioned with how he can move his feet for one or two steps and just eat up space. Uh, I, I've watched him play earlier in high school and, and all the way through to where he's at now at UConn. He's so physically imposing on the court, even against other great athletes, even against other really good players. You know, we watch a lot of tape for what we do, Sam. And I think there are only two guys who genuinely make me laugh every time I watch them play just because what I'm watching is stupid. Yeah. Victor Weminyama is obviously one. But Donovan Klingon is the other. Like in that final four, he has yeah. tipped to himself one-handed offensive rebounds. You just can't yeah. help yourself but laugh. You're like, what the hell is anyone supposed to do against this guy? And to be yeah, able especially to, Miami, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and to be able to combine that just physical, I'm in awe of his physicality with some real skill, real touch, the ability to move his feet for one or two steps and be coordinated. He's got a real, real, real shot at this. Yep. Okay. Next on our list is Riley Kugel. Uh, Riley Kugel is a six foot five scoring guard out of Florida. I thought Kugel had a great close mm-hmm. to the season after uh, Colin Castleton got hurt and Florida needed somebody that could really step into the lineup and just go get buckets. Frankly, uh, I think Kugel had a really, really phenomenal kind of final 10 games. You look at those last 10 games, he averaged 17 points, four rebounds, shot 49.6% from the field, 39.6% from three with a plus true shooting percentage overall. Uh, he has a long way to go. He has a long way to go in terms of the defense, in terms of the decision-making. But like I, I talked to Florida staff, I think after the third game, I watched Kugel uh, back in November and I said, Guys, this is an NBA player. Like he moves like an NBA player. It's probably not this year, uh, 
but I think that by 2024, he's probably an NBA player. And it came even faster than what I thought. Like, I think he probably would have gone in the top 40 this year had he decided to come out, but he decides to go back. Florida's roster is in a really positive position now. They've done a really great job in the transfer portal already getting Walter Clayton, the uh, MAAC player of the year, as well as Micah Hanlockton, who was the Sunbelt rookie of the year due to his defensive upside, a very similar player to Colin Castleton uh, that will allow them to play a stylistically similar way to how they want to play. Plus they have Will Richard and his floor spacing ability as well next season. It's a really strong fit for Riley Kugel uh, on that team. And uh, the Gators will go, I think, as far as he takes them, in my opinion. If he morphs into that guy that can be a 20-point-per-game scorer consistently with the talent around him, I think the Gators have a real shot to be like a top four or five seed in the NCAA tournament next year. I have no notes. I have nothing to add there because you you, know, I, you took my opportunity to talk well, about how well how they've done this? in the portal. Like they, They've been great. Yeah. The one thing I would say is scorers like Kugel who are really good at, at filling it up, those are the guys that can really make a, a large ascent. That if he's averaging 18 to 24 on efficient splits next year and Florida is winning games, that's the one guy who I think could leapfrog this into the top 10 and a little bit higher just because those are the guys that you draft for earlier. It's similar to the type of ascent that we saw from a guy like Jaden Ivey a couple of years ago with his sophomore breakout. Different style of player. But if you can prove that you're a, a more efficient number one type of option over the course of a long season, you have a better chance of leapfrogging yourself into that higher territory. Yeah, no question. Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, is there anything that you have concerns on on Google? Uh, defensively, uh, just kind of yeah. the, the fit on that end. I think 6-5 is a really tough spot to be in if you're not really quick at the point of attack and you're not super physical to guard up against different wings. It just kind of handcuffs whatever team you're playing on in the league to have different types of defensive personnel or schemes to, to help you. So it's it's more so about the natural tools than it is about if he can ever turn into a, a solid defender. He's just not very versatile. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting as well. Uh, but phys- like he's strong, he's physical. He's strong. Like he, he, he's like 200 pounds. Like he looks like a big dude out there for his size. Uh, not like he's a well-built dude with like real body control, real physicality, physical, uh, powerful athlete, uh, at 200 pounds has real defensive upside. I think, uh, the other guy is Terrence Arsenault, uh, at Houston that I think I will have as a first round pick entering next season, maybe not quite a lottery pick, but pro- probably a first-round pick. What do you like about Terrence Arsenault, a guy that we talked about quite a bit in the preseason but didn't really kind of morph into a difference maker for Houston this season? Yeah, I mean, I see him long-term as a lockdown 3-and-D type of guy, and you don't go to a school like Houston and play for a coach like Calvin Sampson if you don't enjoy playing defense. So the fact that he chooses to go back confirms that – He loves something about competing and being that bulldog kind of guy. I think having a a different roster next year at Houston might allow him to get a few more touches on the offensive end with the ball in his hands, as well as show a little bit more defensive versatility. Agree that he needed more time, but I think the, the intrigue of where, how valuable guys like him are with his positional size, ability to shoot the basketball and defensive aptitude those guys do end up being valuable in the NBA. I think you agree would have been around a top 40 guy had he declared this year. 
but I, I do think going back to school will help him. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen him in the pre-draft to feel any type of way about sure. where he would have gone this year. Um, he He's a project at this point, but someone that I think is like a real project worth investing in long-term. Like uh, unequivocally, I think he's someone that I would like to know much, much more about and that I think is really intriguing long-term. Okay, uh, the next guy here, I just want to talk about Providence in some way. Yeah. Two guys from Providence to decide to return that I think would have been certainly two-way guys, if not you know, potential second-round picks. Bryce Hopkins is the main guy that will get the you know attention first team all Big East this past season. Average something like sixteen and eight uh, in that ballpark. Let's say shot limited attempts from three, but knocked down the ones that he took. Was very physical as a driver. Was a mismatch nightmare in that Ed Cooley flex offense. We're going to get to see him, I think, in a little bit different of an offense next season under Kim English. Kim likes to space it out and try and, you know, drive and attack and play with like a well-spaced floor. Uh, Bryce Hopkins, I think, probably would have been a top 50 pick had he decided to come out. The guy that genuinely, like, I get a lot of feedback on from teams that have seen Providence a decent amount is Devin Carter. Uh, Devin Carter was one of the best perimeter defenders in college basketball this season. Uh, Just unequivocally he is an absolute beast he gets around screens he's physical at the point of attack he's strong Uh, the offense is still developing like it's coming like he had a pretty okay season offensively but it was lower use than you'd like to see like he averaged 13 points five rebounds and two and a half assists but he just can't shoot right now is the real problem like he shot 30 percent from three this season if that improves, if the shooting part of his game improves, he's someone that you could see really move up and like make a name for himself as a really intriguing prospect that teams uh, are fascinated in because the defense is as high level as it is. You know, I mentioned with Arsenault the desire to buy in and play for a guy like Calvin Sampson. I, I think the same thing of anybody who chooses to go play for Ed Cooley that you know what you're getting in terms of toughness and physicality and consistency that you've got to bring in on that end of the floor. And that's certainly where Carter pops as being one of the best guys that we've seen be an active, intense perimeter defender in the Ed Cooley era when he was at Providence. I'm curious to see if that translates over to another season. The Friars are doing really well right now. Kim English has kept a lot of important pieces in town, Garway Duel yep. being another one with the recent kind of recommitment that he made to the Friars there, bringing some good guys from George Mason with him. The Big East is going to be really fun again next year. Really, really fun. Yep. Yeah. So right now you're looking at, you know, the fact that Kim brought Justin Fernandez and Devontae Gaines in the backcourt. Uh, you know, they have Jaden Pierre in the backcourt as well. They bring in Garway Dual, who is the guy that I'm telling you, if you would have seen him in hoop summit practice, you would have thought this guy is like a potential one and done. Uh, he was long-term. He was the guy that a lot of GMs and scouts that I talked to while I was just like sitting around there and having conversations and, you know, following up with after he was the guy that they were like, man, like he really impressed us. Like he was, 
his defensive intensity was outrageous. Like he was unbelievable with his hand-eye coordination, the way that he was able to pickpocket guys uh, and really make it hard for them at the point of attack. And then offensively, he had some real shake moments. Like yeah. he played with AJ Johnson in high school earlier in his high school career. I think he's a better prospect than AJ Johnson. Uh, I do. Like AJ Johnson just signed today in the NBL. Uh, I, I have some questions about how successful AJ will be in that setting next year. He's a very skinny kid right now that we we've seen how that goes, uh, in the NBL with guys that are quite skinny from Texas, you know, RJ Hampton, Terrence Ferguson, right. Previously, uh, you know, it, it can be, it can be a bit difficult for those guys from time to time to really, uh, really thrive at the, at that level. Yeah. Right. So, I'm going to be intrigued to see how it goes for him, but Garway, I think, is going to be well-positioned in that backcourt at Providence to really yeah. play well, in my opinion. Yeah, Friars are going to be good. Again, Ed Cooley moving to Georgetown. I think he's done a decent job reloading on the fly so far and bringing in the right guys for him and for the program. Like the Big East with Rick Pitino joining again, it's in a really good spot. Uh, Donovan Klingon going back. You know, Marquette can still be really, really solid and, and strong next year. Villanova's got another year to continue to reload and, and and do what they always do. The Big East is just so fun. So, so fun. Yeah. No, it's going to be a great league again. Oh, look at Georgetown. Adams, Adams' beloved Hoyas, uh, ready to go. You know, Baylor Shireman also, you know, it's he, a guy that's yeah. going back to Creighton next year in the Big East. Really interesting decision, I thought. You know, he was someone that was expected to just to be there for one year at Creighton, but did have the second year. You know, being home, he's from uh the state of nebraska if i remember correctly originally and you know sometimes home is where the heart is and i'm sure creighton is taking care of him in terms of the nil market just given the fact that uh you know he committed there as a transfer last year when all of this really exploded so you know i think he'd have been on a two-way next year for sure and maybe might have made slightly more than what he'll make uh at creighton but you know home is happiness right and you know good for baylor if he decides to Besides, he wants to try and make a run at a Final Four next year. Yeah, and again, the NIL is the game changer here. It makes it more tenable for guys who are freshmen and not sure if they're going to be a first-round pick to come back. It also makes it more tenable for upperclassmen to just see out the rest of their career, enjoy their glory days in college, and know that those two-way spots and ability to earn their way onto an NBA roster are probably going to be there for them down the line as well. Is there anyone else you want to point out? You know, I, I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, Trevin Brazil at Arkansas is going back for another year. Uh, he is, yeah. He he missed a, the end of the season and a large chunk of time due to injury. I was really impressed by him, the activity level on the defensive end of the floor, the addition of a jump shot to his game as like a freak athlete, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, kind of guy. Uh, curious to see what he looks like on the must bus next year because we know their roster is always going to reload through the transfer portal but keeping him to come back is is a a really good move for the Razorbacks and he's another curious guy for me of if he has a really strong solid year next year could float himself up into that first round range yeah just some you know guys we're waiting on decisions from you know Zach Eady is one certainly uh Zolas Tubelis is another one that we're waiting on a decision from uh you know Oscar Shibway it seems like is testing the waters right now we'll see whether or not he returns. I frankly have no idea what the UCLA guys are doing. 
Jalen Clark just like said, I declare draft and like didn't say what he's doing, uh, whether or not he's testing the waters or going two feet in. It feels like, you know, in terms of maintaining his eligibility, same with Amari Bailey today. Like there's no real clarity. It feels like there, and this is me saying, I don't know what they're doing. This isn't me saying that, they have made a decision one way or another. I, I just don't know based off of the information at hand. Um, yeah, Adem you know, Bona is another one. Really yeah. great example of someone that we're really waiting on information from. Uh, I don't think I've seen Oso Iguodaro, uh mm-hmm. make a decision yet, but Marquette is another team that you know could have everybody come back and could be in a really positive position moving forward. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think like Ryan Kalkbrenner is another name that. You know, really, really high-level name that could end up going back to school and really morphing Creighton from, you know, where they were this year to a top ten team next season. Uh, I believe that Michigan State's backcourt, Tyson Walker and AJ Hogard, like have decided to return. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think: is there anybody else that we really, uh, really have missed? Has Julian Phillips made a decision? I don't think I've seen Julian Phillips make a decision yet. Uh, you know, Armando Baycott. Armando Baycott's made a decision. Uh, I don't think Kobe Brown has officially decided anything yet. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think who else, who else, who else. Uh, yeah, Jordan I mean, Walsh, that feels... decision at Arkansas. Yeah, Jordan Walsh. Sorry, I missed. Yeah, my brain failed. I, I've not seen Jordan Walsh's decision to be sure either. So, uh, you know, could be a guy that. Uh, would be very it'd be very interesting to know a lot about uh, what Arkansas looks like with Jordan Walsh, Khalif Battle, and uh, many of the other guys that they have there. Well, and, and look, the other strange part of this with the transfer portal and so much movement that goes on is the guys that are testing the waters find themselves in, in difficult positions because you never know when the right time is to pull the trigger on coming back. If that's a decision that you make, you may find yourself out of an opportunity behind you or or losing some of the comfort and the same role that you expected to have for year two at your college program. If you wait too long to drag out that process. So this is going to be an evolving thing we see over the next several years with the fluidity of declaring and testing the waters and then having to make the decision for, for when to withdraw but I think of the like top forty-five-ish guys; those are the only ones that uh, that I still don't think we've heard from. Yep. Okay. I think uh, I think that's all we got. Spins. Do you have anything else you need to get off your chest before we get out of here? I don't think so. Succession is awesome. I'm glad to have that back in my life. That's about <laughs> are it. You caught up? Uh, I have to watch the most recent one, episode three. I haven't gotten yet, but the first two were awesome. Cool. I will. Uh, I will avoid any comment at all so yeah no i'm i'm excited session is back i'm excited that i'm here in la like i said i had a great few days going around talking to draft prospects it's been great to be back here getting a chance to meet with some of those people you know i do know a lot of agents watch the show like please by all means anybody that you want to send my way i would love to you know talk to and would love to you know get to know them a little bit better so please send them my way would be more than happy to talk to them uh Let's see. That's about it, man. That's all I've got. I'm uh, I'm pretty wiped. I'm out here in LA, and it's going to be a uh, beautiful few days while I'm still out here. Enjoy some of the weather in the beach while you're out there too, Sam. Will you? <laughs> I, I absolutely will, man. Uh, Adam, please tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. 
Yeah, uh, follow me on Twitter at the box and one underscore YouTube. My channel is Adam Spinella or the Substack, the box and one Just put out uh, Jordan Hawkins and Grady Dick scouting report videos with the Grady Dick scout uh, written, written form coming out here just before the weekend. But Portsmouth is really what's coming up this weekend. Really looking forward to heading down there and diving head first into seeing a bunch of the, the great upperclassmen that we have. Always one or two guys who ends up, you know, rising from there and ends up either getting drafted or being actually an impact player early in their career. So I'm very fascinated to, to get my eyes on this year's field. Love it. I'm so excited. We'll talk about that uh, maybe on Monday, maybe, you know, Sunday. Sure. We'll see whenever, you know, whenever you're around again. Uh, the The problem with next week is that I fly back to Australia on Monday, U.S. time. I will lose a day basically traveling back. Uh, and then Sunday is my birthday, actually. So we will Ooh. see whether or not I decide to record a podcast on my birthday. But uh, Adam, this is all I've got for you, man. Uh, this is all I've got for the people as well. I've got a bunch of newsers up on The Athletic breaking down a bunch of decisions. AJ Johnson, Donovan Klingon, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. Just looking through what I've written recently. Cam Whitmore, Walter Clayton, uh, Khalil Ware, Bronny James. Uh, we did like a little breakdown on him. So quite, quite a bit of stuff over on the website. Please go rate, review, subscribe to this show. Subscribe over on YouTube. The Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vicini. Please go search that out. Uh, That's all I've got, man. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.